You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I feel like who art ed? Try to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. I thought it's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted Weekly Art History for All Ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and this episode marks four years of exploring visual arts through an audio medium. It has been quite the ride. Aside from the guests I bring on the show, Who Arted has largely been a solo venture. I'm just an elementary art teacher with a bit of a curious nature and a delusion that I can do anything. And so over the course of doing this show, I have been forced to do a whole lot of research, learn a bit of graphic design. I created the music for it. I've also learned to edit and I appreciate everybody who has put up with me through all the stumbling blocks in that learning process. I really just started this show thinking I would create something as a classroom resource and learn a bit about audio production so I could teach the medium to my students. The first season, I really discovered just how generous all of my colleagues are with their time as so many staff members at my school signed up to join me and chat about art. Of course, that first season had to end abruptly as the pandemic hit and I needed to focus on my family's health. As I came back for season two, though, I decided to tweak the format a bit and added my Fun Fact Friday mini-episodes. I was honestly a bit surprised to find the show was getting a bit of traction outside my little school community. I even got an email from someone at a nonprofit out of France asking permission to add my show to their media library. And as many teachers I've worked with know, I am always happy to share any resources I have. So I said sure and pretty much forgot about it until I got an invite to their launch party. As an ignorant American, I was not fully aware of how big that nonprofit was until I got an invitation to a private party at the Louvre. Unfortunately, it was a school night, so I had to politely decline. But I am tremendously honored that my podcast is a small part of the Art Explorer Academy. And for any listeners interested in learning more about art, I'll include a link in the show notes. The Art Explorer Academy is a totally free resource with podcasts, videos, pictures, and articles compiled in conjunction with some of the most prestigious art institutions on Earth. It is very cool to get to be any part of that. 
Along similar lines, it was an honor to get to join Airwave Media, a podcast network for the constantly curious. Signing on to the same network as shows I enjoyed as a listener, it was quite a thrill, and I am grateful for all the opportunities and support I've gotten from so many people on this podcasting journey. So today, to mark the anniversary, I wanted to do a little recap of some of the odd and interesting stories I've learned over the years. It's what I like to think of as a fun fact extravaganza. But again, as I have been so fortunate in finding numerous kind people to support me along the way, I wanted to invite a few of my podcast buddies to join me on this one. First off, I have a longtime friend and colleague. Hi, I'm Tony Kressel, and I've been on a few episodes over the years, including the pilot episode of Who Arted. I wanted to share a little bit about the Mona Lisa and how it became the most famous painting in the world. On August 21st, 1911, a painter by the name of Louis Barod went into the Louvre to paint. He was one of many aspiring artists who would go in and study the famous works doing his own version. Although on this particular day, he had a slightly different idea. He had been upset that the museum had been putting their artwork behind glass. We know that the artwork on, under glass protects it, but the glare on the glass made it difficult to see the artworks. So he went to paint a picture of a girl staring at her reflection in the glass, which obscured the view of the Mona Lisa. It's kind of a protest painting. The only problem on this particular day was that he couldn't paint his picture illustrating the difficulty of seeing the Mona Lisa because when he went into the gallery, he really couldn't see the Mona Lisa. When he asked the guard where the painting was, they first thought it was just being pho photographed. Eventually, they discovered the photographers didn't have it and the painting was in fact stolen. The Mona Lisa was missing for two years, and over that time, there were numerous suspects, including the famous artist Pablo Picasso and the poet Apollinaire. In the end, it turned out ironically, the painting was stolen by the man who installed the glass intended to protect it. Vincenzo Perugia hid in a storage closet at the, as the museum closed. He then took the Mona Lisa off the wall which was actually harder than you might expect. It is not painted on a light canvas, but rather a wooden panel, and with the frame and the glass, the whole thing weighed 200 pounds. He took the painting from its case, and in the morning, simply walked out with it under his cloak. When the police came to question him, it never occurred to them that the man in the humble apartment with a postcard of the Mona Lisa on his mantle had the real thing tucked behind his wall. Vincenzo had wanted to bring it back to Italy because he believed that's where it truly belonged because it was painted by an Italian painter, Da Vinci. After two years, with her face missing from the Louvre, but all over newspapers, the Mona Lisa was recovered in Italy where it was displayed for the public before being returned to Paris. So Vincenzo actually got his wish. A hundred thousand people came to see the Mona Lisa in what was probably the first big international tour for an artwork. The theft and eventual return transformed the Mona Lisa from one of the many great Renaissance paintings housed in the museum to an icon of popular culture. Thank you so much. I hope you continue listening to Who Arted. Check out all the podcasts available in the Who Arted universe. Now, if you want to learn more about that famous theft, I highly recommend the book The Mona Lisa Vanishes. Uh, 
I recorded an episode with the author Nicholas Day a while back. He was incredibly nice, smart, and insightful, and I'll include links to that episode and, of course, the book if you're interested. Now, these kinds of stories are the reason I started the podcast. And when I was a kid, I remember seeing artworks from people like Piet Mondrian. I was told he painted squares and rectangles in the primary colors, so go paint squares and rectangles in the primary colors. I didn't really get the point until I was much older and saw his work as a part of the broader story in the shift of Western artists towards abstraction. As I started to imagine what it must have felt like to be a painter in the 19th century as photography came about. Imagine being confronted with a device that can make your job obsolete, but you love your job and want to find a way to stay relevant. What would you do? Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that right around that time, the Impressionist movement sprang up with a huge emphasis on color, an element the camera couldn't capture. Then artists began shifting toward abstraction to emphasize mood and ideas until we got to people like Mondrian who went as far as they could in the realm of abstraction thinking about the basic elements and how they could be arranged to make visually pleasing designs without any recognizable subject. By removing representational elements and breaking art down to the basics like line, color, and shape, modernists were trying to create something that would be timeless and universal. It was art for all people. Now, whether they succeeded is another matter entirely. I mean, Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles was a modern painting so despised by a segment of the population that it is said to have nearly brought down the Australian government. So, obviously, not all of these things were universally loved. Still, as I come to understand the stories and ideas behind these artworks, I just keep finding more that I appreciate. Now for another fun little fact I missed in history class the first time around. Since I first launched this show on Halloween, I thought it might be appropriate to share a little bit about those creepy-looking gargoyles we see on a lot of old buildings. I always looked at medieval architecture and thought those carved figures had some sort of superstitious origin. This was probably based on my childhood love of a cartoon called Gargoyles, about magical stone statues that would come to life and become superheroes protecting the castle and the city. Interestingly, gargoyles were actually there to protect the building, but not in any sort of superstitious way. A gargoyle would jut out from the building and... Typically, you'll see a big open mouth on gargoyles. That's because there's a drain pipe running through the statue, and the idea is that it would divert water away from the building. The gargoyle would basically spit the water away from the building, so it was protecting the building, not from any imagined evil spirits or anything like that, but rather from the very real danger of water eroding the foundation. Now here's another clip from an art teacher that I've learned a lot from over the years. Before I was creating my own podcasts, I was a frequent listener. For years, I've enjoyed listening to Art Ed Radio from the Art of Education University. In fact, I've been listening so long, I remember when it was called AOE Live. But around a year and a half after I started my podcast, I was fortunate to get to talk to Tim Bogatz, 
host of Art Ed Radio. He was nice enough to not only join me on Who Arted, but he also invited me on his show to plug my annual Arts Madness tournament. I think one of the most awesome things about that experience was finding that someone I admired and learned from for years was just as kind and thoughtful as his on-air persona. He is a genuinely nice guy who once again made time to help me when I asked him to contribute a clip for my anniversary show. Hi, this is Tim Bogans. I'm the host of the Art Ed Radio podcast. I was very excited when Kyle asked me to share one of my favorite stories from art history. Uh, before I get to that story, though, I want to say congratulations to Kyle on four years of doing this podcast. Uh, I know that's not easy to do. I appreciate everything that, that he does, and I love how he continues to come up with creative new ideas uh, like this for his episodes. So with that, I want to share my favorite story about Salvador Dali. Now, I have a lot of options here because there are a great number of just weird and wild stories about Salvador Dali. You know, I could talk about the fact that he had a pet ocelot that he used to just walk around the neighborhood, uh, the amount of time that he spent on that iconic mustache. Uh, I could talk about the time uh, he went to give a speech while wearing a diving helmet, which was locked too tightly on his head, and he almost suffocated. But uh, none of those are actually my favorite. I think my favorite Salvador Dali story is when he was in France and he decided to get a Rolls Royce, just one of the nicest cars he could find, got a Rolls Royce and he filled it with cauliflower, uh, over half a ton of cauliflower to be specific, uh, about 1,100 pounds of cauliflower, and then he drove that Rolls Royce filled with vegetables uh, all the way across France to give a university speech. And in that speech, he talked about how all of his inspiration comes to him through his elbow and that everything ends up in the cauliflower. Unfortunately, uh, the cauliflower is a little bit too small to actually prove this idea. Now, what that had to do with his art, I have no idea. I just love the fact that uh, he decided to find the nicest car he could and fill it with vegetables and drive it across the country of France because why not? Uh, and, you know, his his stunts and his pronouncements and his speeches kept getting more and more wild as he moved on further in his career because he was determined to stay famous and to force people to hear about him and talk about him. You know, he was always trying to get a response. And maybe my favorite quote uh, is when people would accuse him of these ideas and accuse him of taking things too far. You know, they say, you're going too far. Dolly would usually reply, it's the only place I ever wanted to go. Over the years doing this show, it has been exciting to learn about all different kinds of art and talk to people from around the world. While most art history shows focus on just the traditional, quote, fine art of paintings and sculptures found in major museums, I've tried to broaden the scope of my show and find good in all art forms. I've actually had more than one Lego-themed episode, but one of my favorite fun facts is that in 2009, 
James May and about a thousand volunteers built a two-story house out of Lego bricks, complete with Lego furniture, Lego sinks, and even a Lego toilet. He spent the night there saying the Lego bed was exactly as uncomfortable as one might imagine. But still, it was an amazing feat showing that with enough Lego bricks, time, and good-natured people willing to lend a hand, we can bring our childhood dreams into reality. On the topic of artists making the world a more magical place, Christo and Jean-Claude were a couple who became famous for using fabric installations to transform our world. In 2016, Christo completed one of their most ambitious works, The Floating Piers. He raised millions of dollars to put 70,000 square meters of yellow fabric on Lake Iseo in Italy. Visitors were welcomed to walk across the fabric, which would move with the surface of the waves, giving people the sensation of walking on water. While a lot of art focuses on the real world, I also appreciate those who transport us into virtual worlds. One of my favorite episodes covered a bit of history of the development of Mario. As someone who's not much of a gamer, I was blown away by just how big Mario is. But mostly, I was fascinated to read about Shigeru Miyamoto, the man behind the icon. Interestingly, Miyamoto's big break came largely by accident. When he was first hired by Nintendo, he was making designs for their game cabinets. Nintendo had grossly overestimated the popularity of a game called Radar Scope and found themselves with 2,000 cabinets in need of a new game. They wanted to make a Popeye game, but couldn't get the rights, so Miyamoto came up with a new concept, and Donkey Kong was born. When his game was released in 1981, it pulled in $200 million, and Miyamoto was quickly put in charge of game development. He approached gaming in a new way, with an emphasis on the joy of discovery, leading to massive hits with not only Mario, but The Legend of Zelda, among others. I had a great time talking with a fellow podcaster halfway around the world as Matthew Bliss joined me all the way from Australia to talk about Mario and Nintendo. He was also nice enough to share a bit more of his gaming insights for this episode. Hi. I'm Matthew Bliss, podcast editor and producer for Hire, and host of Dead Drop Game News, and from my home to yours. There is a rich history of art and design across centuries of human existence, but there are sometimes no weirder trivia about art than there is in video games, an industry that has grown over decades and moved from two to three, and one could even argue four dimensions with increasing levels of detail the gamer's experience must be prioritized. For that reason, developers will often take shortcuts. And we're not talking about invisible walls or Truman-esque flat horizons at the edge of the game world. No, no, no. Bethesda, developer of such popular titles as The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim and Starfield, decided to take an interesting development shortcut in Fallout 3 about a post-apocalyptic America in which humans have survived in vaults to shield them from nuclear radiation. Set in Washington, D.C., they wanted to add a metro train to simulate reality. Unfortunately, the game's limitations meant that they couldn't develop a train artifact without adding additional work. 
So what did they do? For one very special NPC, or non-playable character, they replaced their right hand with that of a train car. That's right, the train in Fallout 3 was simply a character walking around with a train on its head. This made it easy for the developers to add functionality to the game without compromising the integrity of their build. Weird. So why would they do this? The development time of video games can often be super long, which means decisions about the game environment have sometimes been made months before a problem like this comes up, which forces the developers to get a little bit creative with how they put things together. There are plenty of weirder development tales out there in the games industry, but it pales in comparison to the revealing and reflective discussions made by your illustrious host, Kyle Wood, on this very podcast. Thank you for allowing me to contribute, my friend, and keep arting. Now, after the break, I'm going to wind things down with a bit more rapid-fire BuzzFeed-style listicle as I share 10 more fun facts you probably missed in your typical art class. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Who Arted's fourth anniversary fun fact extravaganza. I'm going to wrap up this episode with 10 more fun facts you probably missed in your typical art class. Uh, first off, pencils don't have lead. That was good news. I wish I had learned like 30 years ago when I accidentally got the tip of a pencil lodged in my hand and thought for a day or two that I was going to suffer from lead poisoning. We often refer to the core of the pencil as lead, but that's kind of an accident of history. In the 16th century in Burrowdale, England, lightning struck a tree which fell, and they discovered a giant deposit of a black substance they assumed was some form of lead. In fact, it was graphite, and they discovered that it worked beautifully for mark-making, while technology did evolve to make it into better and stronger pencils, the name kind of stuck, and it has been referred to as lead ever since. Now, on the topic of odd things sticking, 
The number of colors in the rainbow is really in the eye of the beholder. For a long time, people around the world identified usually like three to five colors in the rainbow. Sir Isaac Newton is the one who said there were seven. He gave us that Roy G. Biv model, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. But he was largely just saying that because he wanted the science of light and color to match sound. He thought it would be perfectly neat, orderly, and harmonious for there to be seven colors in the visible spectrum to match the seven notes in the musical scale. In reality, visible light is a spectrum that could be split into millions of colors represented by different wavelengths of light. A third, since the 19th century, artists have pushed boundaries from non-representational to non-objective art, getting farther and farther away from art based on observations of what they see in the real world. Some have gone even further, creating a museum of non-visible art in which title cards with descriptions hang on otherwise blank walls, inviting viewers to imagine the artwork described. Number four, speaking of things that seem really sus, in 2021, the artist Jens Hanning was commissioned to create an artwork using actual money. He was supposed to frame the average annual wages of Austrian and Danish workers. The museum gave him about $84,000 to make the artwork, but instead he pocketed the cash delivering two blank canvases and saying it was a new work called Take the Money and Run. It got a lot of laughs and drew big crowds to the museum, but of course it also led to a court battle. Last I saw Hanning lost in court and was ordered to return the money minus about $6,000 to compensate him for the showing of Take the Money and Run. Number five, back in the day, the show Seinfeld got laughs in an episode in which Jerry's father speculated that Claude Monet must have been nearsighted. They joked there was no other explanation for his paintings to look so blurry. The truth is, Monet did actually have vision problems, and some say that after his cataract surgery, he may have actually been able to see ultraviolet light. They point to changes in his color usage after the surgery as evidence he was perceiving the world differently. Coming in at number six, on the topic of artists who perceived the world differently, the famous artist Vasily Kandinsky was said to have had a condition known as synesthesia, which is a combining of senses. In his case, his senses of sight and sound appear to have been linked. He was known to listen to music in his studio, painting what he saw, and he would talk about visual art using musical terms like compositions, improvisations, as well as color harmonies. Number seven, Kandinsky is widely viewed as a pioneer of abstract art, and he claimed to have actually created the first abstract painting in 1911, saying, quote, Back then, not one single painter was painting in an abstract style. This claim was, of course, not true. Arguably, abstract art has been created by various people from cultures all around the world pretty much as long as humanity has existed. But even if we look at just the small sector of European fine art painting, he still wasn't the first. Hilma af Klint was creating abstract paintings about five years before Kandinsky. 
She was a practitioner of the spiritualist movement and claimed her works were guided by a spirit. Her unusual methods led to innovative works as she produced abstract paintings before Kandinsky and automatic drawings before the Surrealists. Unfortunately, she was so far ahead of her time, nobody really recognized or appreciated her brilliance. With the art world largely not knowing how to make sense of any of her work, she kept those paintings in storage and stipulated in her will that they were not to be displayed for the public until 20 years after her death. Number 8. Yet another great female artist whose work pushed boundaries ahead of her male counterparts was Janet Sobel. One day, her son was struggling with a painting, After she made a comment about the work, he handed her the brush, saying he'd like to see her do better. So she did. And that is how a Ukrainian-American grandmother began painting in her living room and eventually became one of the most influential artists you've probably never heard of. She started off making works similar to the folk art she remembered from her childhood in Ukraine, but quickly she began experimenting with different tools and methods. She was known to use her vacuum or pipettes to spread paint all over the canvas. While most people credit Jackson Pollock with inventing the drip painting method, he actually saw her painting hanging in Peggy Guggenheim's gallery a year before he, quote, invented the technique, and he commented about how striking her work was. 9. On various episodes... I have covered art heists and other crimes, but one of my favorite ridiculous stories is about Ai Weiwei's installation of 100 million sunflower seeds. Not only did some people arguably deface the work by launching four actual sunflower seeds into his sea of 100 million porcelain seeds, putting up a title card calling it Seeds on Seeds, About three years after the work was displayed at the Tate in London, a smaller show was put on at the Danson House. Curators there asked people who stole some of Ai Weiwei's porcelain sunflower seeds to send them over for an exhibition. They received more than 10 pounds of seeds from all around the world. Now, finally, coming at number 10, just to prove the art world is absolutely bananas, Here are some food-related fun facts. In 2019, an artist named Maurizio Catalan duct-taped a banana to a wall, and it grabbed headlines as people questioned who would pay over $100,000 for a banana duct-taped to the wall. The truth is actually a little bit more absurd, as people really paid for the idea of taping a banana to the wall. Catalan sold three editions of the conceptual piece, meaning he didn't really give them the banana on the wall. He gave them a certificate of authenticity and instructions for how to install the piece titled Comedian. While it was on display at Art Basel, another artist, David DeTuna, took the banana off the wall and ate it. He called his eating the banana a performance piece called Hungry Artist. He was not charged with a crime, although he was asked to leave the fair. Just this last year, a student appears to have pulled a similar stunt. He pulled the banana off the wall in the museum, ate it, and then taped the peel back up. When asked why he did it, he simply stated that he had missed breakfast that day. 
And to wrap this up on a final fun food fact, one of the times the scream was stolen, and yes, it has been stolen multiple times, the Mars Candy Company offered a reward of 2 million dark chocolate M&Ms for its return. And apparently, it worked. Now, I hope you enjoyed this little walk down memory lane with me. And if you want to learn more about the fun facts shared throughout this episode, check the links in the show notes. There will be a lot of links in the show notes. And as always, if you enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to leave me a nice rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, tell a friend about the show. But above all, I want to say thank you to everyone who's taken the time to listen. I hope you've enjoyed the show, maybe discovered some new insights, found some odd and interesting stories that brightened your day or helped you see art in a new way. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. If you have some odd and interesting stories from art history you'd love to share, you can email me, whoartedpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, I'm always looking for more guests who want to nerd out about art history with me. If you want to come join me and talk about your favorite artist or artwork, just send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.